0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. My name is Chris Spangle. Thank you so much for joining me here on the program. And uh, this is a topic that I think is really, really uh, paradigm shifting for a lot of people. Because even for libertarians, I think a lot of times we as libertarians think oh gosh, you know, we just need a government, we need to get the government out of everything. Or maybe you're a Republican and you go, oh, we need a business to fix this social ill. Or you're a Democrat and you go, we just need more programs run through the federal government and that will solve problems. And what effect has that mentality or those mentalities had on our society well, Dan Johnson of the Institute for Community Solutions, a good friend of mine, uh, partner of our friend and sometimes co-host, Sarah Brady, is here. Uh, you know, uh, I like to call him Mr. Sarah Brady uh, as a joke. No, I'm just kidding. Um, anyways, this is a very serious topic. I should not be making jokes in the introduction to But he has a special report that he's going to talk about uh, at the end of the program that you should definitely stick around and hear about the research that they've done over two years to find concrete solutions to issues of criminal justice. That is a must listen. But first, we're going to talk about the need. But first, we're going to talk about using compassionate means to solve social problems as opposed to coercion or profit. It's something you cannot miss. Tune in right now here on the Chris Spangle Show right after these words. We run on the value for value model here on the Chris Spangle Show and the We Are Libertarians podcast network. That means do you get value out of the show? Do you learn something that helps you sound smarter when talking with your friends? Do you feel a little bit more connected to the world and inspired to do something a little bit differently? Well, then please give some value back. And the best way that you can do that is through our Patreon. You can go to supportcss.com or patreon.com slash libertarians, and you can join our Patreon. Not only do you support the program and the entire We Are Libertarians podcast network by helping pay all of the bills, you're also going to get ad-free shows. You're going to get early releases, sometimes months in advance in terms of episodes that haven't been released in the public feed yet. You'll also be able to get the full archives, the full RSS feed of all the past episodes. And there's even a tier that you can come on the show or you can have your name mentioned every episode like I am about to do right now. Thank you so much to our $100 a month members, especially Vincent Picole, Matthew Durbin, Jason Doolittle, Christy Avery, and our good friend Reinhold. Thank you so much for supporting us. And we appreciate everybody that considers making a contribution today. Dan Johnson, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Chris.
0: All right. So let's start with a little bit more about what the Institute for Community Solutions is, what it does, and give us a little bit of the history.
1: Absolutely. So the Institute for Community Solutions uh, was started a couple of years ago. And uh, the reason I started the Institute was I noticed that we really have three ways of solving problems in society, but we only use two of them. We only think about two of them. The first way we solve problems in society is government, which I'm sure a decent amount of your audience is like, ah, cringe. But uh, government is primarily used to do things like protection and safety and things like that. Very good at that. Monopoly of force, if you will. Um, Then we have uh, business. So for those things that force is not the best way to solve that problem, business really and the free market really helps people buy and sell and serve needs that otherwise wouldn't get served. and when you think about solving problems, people really only think of those two sectors, business and government. Uh, but there's actually a third sector, the nonprofit sector or the community sector. And uh there are you know millions of people, 42 million Americans, volunteer with this sector every year. Um the it, it brings in about 10% of our GDP goes to this sector. And uh the organizations in this sector are best positioned to target the major problems we're having in society today. If you think about the major issues we struggle with in society right now, issues of homelessness, issues of lack of affordability of healthcare, issues of uh, uh, criminal justice, uh, issues where the people who are struggling are those who cannot pay for the market solution. And, uh, who are not really well served by government coming in and saying, this is what you have to do and we're going to require you to do
0: this. Yeah. I think you and I are so in line in terms of how libertarianism ought to play out and where our focus ought to be. I mean, it's one thing to be anti-government, but uh, after doing that for the last 15 years, 20 years of my career, it's sort of like you, you, you aren't successful because you fail at not articulating a vision for how to move forward and a capitalistic model is unpersuasive, I think, to people, where the the solution that you're talking about, that this show is really about, is using compassion as your driving force instead of coercion. And I think what was the, uh, and capitalism, maybe, I, I don't Rocket. remember how you yeah. <clears throat> profit. Mm-hmm. That, I think, sells to everybody in terms of how to position and market more limited government or completely limited government if you're an anarchist as opposed to well let's just get rid of this stuff and then start a business and then 15 years you'll get pushed out as the CEO or right because starting a business is hard but it isn't it's not that it's not hard to start a nonprofit Dan but it it's you know a little more easy to get people bought into an idea to alleviate suffering than it is to make profit.
1: Well, and, and here's the fact of the matter. You know, government was a huge advance over what we had before. You go to countries like Burma or something like that, where they don't have a stable government, a stable place where the rules are set and people enforce those rules. There is so much bribery. There is so much corruption. There is so much really people trying to take advantage of uh, the situation in any way they can. And so government was a huge advance in protecting ourselves and in, in the founders view, protecting our rights. And then the free market really launched after Adam Smith's book. And that was a huge advance. I mean, all, you know, the government was really put in a position where they were running markets before the, the free market revolution and the Enlightenment, and they sucked at it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely terrible because it's not what they're good at. It's not a good institution. It's not set up to do that. And so the market came through and revolutionized prosperity throughout the entire world. Um, but then we had this group of people who were left out of that revolution, people who cannot actually pay for the services. Look, if you want literally anything nowadays and you have the money for it, you can probably get it. Like yeah. you, you, Pretty soon you'll be able to get a trip to Mars if you have the money to pay for it, right? But those people who don't have the money to pay for it, now they're left behind. And the question that society is asking itself right now is how do we solve that? And the answer that most people have is, well, clearly the for-profit companies can't do it. So government should. But the problem with that is government is good at one thing, projecting force. That is what they're good at. SWAT team that knocks down your door, the military raid in Baghdad, they, whatever. They're really good at killing people or locking people up. And sometimes you need that in order to have safety. But the vast majority of the problems in this country are not that. They're problems with the education system. Their problems with healthcare, their problems with homelessness. We don't, broadly speaking, have a safety problem in this country. We've more or less solved that. It's not completely, you know, there's still problems. But from a societal standpoint, we've more or less solved that. What we haven't solved are all these issues where we need to use compassion to reach people, to hear, uh, hear them where they're at, to see them where they're at, to understand their situation, and then to help them get out of it even if they don't have the money to pay us for that. That's where we're at as a society.
0: Would, would, it, would it be fair to say that we have a an income redistribution problem in that when you look at government solutions, especially on the left, that's where they seem to want to go, and then the right seems to want to protect themselves from having to redistribute that income by force. Uh, the most charitable group of people on the planet generally are um, – Christians and and conservative leaning, uh, and I, you can argue you can you can correct me on that fact, but like when I, when I was talking to somebody recently, she's like, when one of the problems that we have in the nonprofit sector is that giving by Christians and church going people is dropping about one percent a year, and so therefore it's rippling through the rest of the nonprofit community because they're that big block of people who are generally trying to take their income and redistribute can't say the word but you know what i mean to people who are in marginalized positions dangerous positions weak positions in our society they have less capital because we're we're kind of de-churching um and that seems and that got me thinking dan like all right. The, the issue really in America today is somewhat income redistribution. How do we get people who have – I mean, this is sort of the conversation around Black Lives Matter and reparations, right? Well, I don't think anybody wants black Americans to be largely disadvantaged. They want to see them equal, although I wouldn't argue everybody. I've been on Twitter lately. Um but i think most now known as x right most decent thinking americans want to make sure that there's opportunity for everybody regardless of their the color of their skin and the way to really do that is through mm. distributing income and redistributing it through what you're talking about the civil sector um is my thinking correct on that i mean that that's just like the nugget of the idea that i've been trying to process over the last couple months uh, and you're a great person to ask. Like, does my thesis have merit? I think it has some
1: merit. Yeah, it, you know, there is certainly a uh, distribution of wealth issue, particularly racially. I mean, I think Black Americans have about seventy percent of the wealth of their white counterparts, which makes things really hard to uh, like send your kid to college so that they can get a better job in the future and they can provide for their children.
0: The down payment, the greatest engine for wealth in families is homes. And most of my friends got down payments from their grandfathers or their parents, or yep. that, that was not, that is not available to a lot of black Americans because of redlining, for instance.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And a lot of these policies that were specifically designed to include them. So you have a income you know issue there. Uh, you also have a, a mindset issue. First thing they focus on is mindset. Because when you've been in a situation where you don't have the resources to, you know, provide for yourself, provide for your family, you get in the mindset of "I can't do this," "I can't do this," "I can't do this," um, and uh, you have to kind of break that mindset to understand. Well, you know, there are work you know, programs that you can take on. You can, you do have a skill set that you can actually apply for, uh, in the marketplace. Uh, things like that. Um, there are lots of different reasons why people are at that lower end of the economic spectrum. But I would argue a big piece of those reasons is because instead of funneling the money that we spend uh, on social services through organizations that actually know the people they're trying to help or through organizations that are helping people in their community, but instead we funnel it through these massive nationwide programs thinking, well, that will solve the problem, clearly. Clearly. Of all these
0: forms and rules. Can you, can you give an example?
1: Absolutely. So, here's an example of how this hurts a domestic violence shelter in Arizona and I were having a discussion about uh, five years ago or so. I was talking to the executive director, and uh, they were about 70% federally funded through Department of Justice Violence Against Women Act grants. And uh, when I opened the interview, the first thing he said was nonprofits should stop relying on state and federal funding. And I was like, Wow. Okay. Uh what more do you have to say on this? I wasn't going
0: expecting- Go
1: on. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And he said, because it has strings attached to it that are used to try to prevent like fraud. But that if you're in the bureaucrat you're a bureaucrat in Washington, it makes perfect sense. And for a shelter it doesn't. And one of those strings with all their funding, for example, was you could not spend any of that money on pets. You had to spend it on the women and that makes perfect sense if you don't know much about this space you don't know much about the women they're trying to help but the fact is in domestic violence situations 50 percent of women will not leave their partner because they can't take their pet with them they're not going to leave their pet with the same abusive asshole who they are trying to escape from and so this shelter was having women turn down their services over and over again because they couldn't spend this money to help the individuals that they believe needed the help. And uh, they eventually were able to get a different type of funding and uh, they were able to build a little dog shelter. Uh, And now they can have two times as many women at their shelter because they can actually bring their pets with them. That's one example of look, it's trying to prevent fraud from a a national level. You don't want people to spend the money on things they're not supposed to be. But because the government doesn't know the community and doesn't know the people they're trying to serve, the restriction on that money caused a ton of problems is actually hurting people in the end instead of helping them. And so I think that what the the left and the right can agree on is we should spend some money on social programs. Now, I know there's some anarchists out there like, no, no, we shouldn't even help people. But I think the left and right can agree we should be sending some of our money to the organizations and to the people who are helping others and who are most in need of help. But what the right's problem is, is uh, all of this money I'm paying in taxes is just getting wasted everywhere and not actually going to those people. And what the left's problem is, is they don't really have effective programs to offer because they keep using the organization that is designed for protecting people to help people. Right. And they're two very different mindsets. You really like, you really can't put a cop on the street with the mindset of primarily going out and helping people and with the mindset of primarily protecting people. If you have a SWAT team member who's out there, you're not going to have them help out the, the mentally uh, ill person on the street. Uh, it's just not going to work. It's a different mindset. And so uh, I think what they can both agree on, if we can do it as a side, if we can understand that there is a way to solve these problems that is not using coercion and force at the the tip of it because it's not even effective. Regardless of what you think about the coercion and force, at the end of the day, you're, it's not effective to help people change if you're forcing them to change. You're requiring them to change in the way you want them to change. So,
0: so let me ask you, Mr. Hayek, if, you, if you're if you going to advocate for so, social safety net programs, um, which ones would you keep? What would that look like? You know, how and isn't that inherently forced when you're di- redistributing income?
1: So the mindset that I adopt is each institution has a purpose. The institution of government, their purpose is force and protection. Whenever you need force to solve a problem, you bring them in. Um, the institution of business is profit. Uh, profit and uh, providing all of these goods for everybody who can pay for it awesome. The institution of community is there when compassion is the number one way to solve that problem. So when I talk about social safety net programs, I'm literally talking about I think the community sector should take over all social safety net programs. I think every social net safety net program in this country should be driven by compassion, because that's the way to actually help people. Is you know There's an organization that, that uh, we're highlighting in our upcoming event, um, the Restorative Justice Mediation Program. Uh, and uh, they're a unique organization. They're completely 100% uh, community funded. Uh, so they receive no government funding whatsoever. And uh, they take uh, youth who have been charged with a crime and sit them down with the person they hurt so that they can understand the impact that they made. Uh, they had one where this, these teens had vandalized a school and broken some of the windows. They actually sat them down with the uh first grade class that they had um broken the windows of yeah. and got to hear from these kids what it was like to see broken glass on the floor in their classroom and how unsafe that made them feel. And uh then they developed between the, the victim, in this case would have been the teacher, uh between the victim and the offender, a custom plan that makes the victim feel whole and leans into the offender's strengths, what they can do. So in this case, they actually fixed up the school, and they fixed the windows, and put in new windows, things like that. Um, And that kind of customization leads to a recidivism rate of less than 10%, whereas Mm. our national recidivism rate is 44%. Um, That's only possible if you can customize the program for the needs of the people that you're helping Only possible if you approach that from a lens of compassion, both for the victim, which is easier to feel compassion for, and for the offenders, and for what are you? What are you guys trying to express? What are you guys trying to get out of this? And when people sit and think about you know crime, they just want to lock somebody up in most cases because they think that will make them safer. What makes them the most safe if you can do it? You can't do it with everyone. What makes them the most safe is the offender realizing that there are different ways to achieve their goals than the crime that they committed. And that's only possible if you can customize it and design it for the particular person you're helping. So for me, our social safety net programs are concerned. I can't think of a social safety net program the government got involved in that it made better that it made a if you think about it, make a long term impact on the people that it was supposed to help
0: or to eventually become a threat to the very fabric of the society that it's supposed to serve. I mean, we're going to we in 20 in the 2030s will run out of money for Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security. We will be bankrupted as a nation and we will have to print more money, which will make inflation worse, which uh, you and I were talking off air like. I don't know how my uh, $32,000 a year self, when I worked at uh, a job less than, a little over 10 years ago, I don't know how I would have made it right now. And that is a very normal average salary for most people. I don't, you know, when I was making $22,000, that was in the 2010s. I don't know Way how, back. I don't know how the, how somebody would have made, made it on that. Right. And I'm not killing it in terms of income, but we're feeling it. You know, we're, we're not at, – we're at a level where we're not supposed to feel it. Um, So I, I, I look at it and I go, look, our long-term fiscal policy is going to hurt the people it is supposed to protect the most. So people who are on Social Security, who depend on it for paying for their ability to live, Medicaid, Medicare, people who depend on it to live, not people who are just – well, I'm 65 and I'm a millionaire and I guess I'll take Social Security because it'll save me some money. Uh, that's not who these. That's who it's serving. It's it's going to hurt the most vulnerable in our society because we refuse to reform these programs. And it's just a huge, huge, I, I think it's just an absolute black mark and disgrace for the United States that we can't come together to figure this out. And it is going to cut, cut, mean cutting costs, it is going to, in the temporary period, cause some pain. But overall, you're going to see spontaneous order develop as... Uh, I, I've talked about this a lot on the show, Dan, and maybe you can talk about the the nature of the people that you work with. Um, one of my favorite episodes of the show was uh, comedian Stuart Huff, and he a uh, great storyteller, really good episode, a long time ago. I don't even know if it's in the feed. It may be in the Patreon feed. Um, you know, he, he witnessed a car wreck and it was a bad car wreck and 20 people got out of their car and ran towards the car because they had an impulse to help. He said, not one of us looked at each other and said, well, are you a Republican or a Democrat, a Jew or a Christian, black or white? We all as human beings saw the suffering and move towards that suffering. And I've always used that illustration because I think it's so beautiful that um, that Americans, human beings, generally will move towards suffering, especially if their basic needs are already met. And by inflating the currency, printing more currency, increasing the size and scope of our programs, we're going to have an episode coming up soon on the expansion of... Uh, drug price controls and how that ultimately is going to hurt the people it's meant to help Um, we are as the declaration says eating out our substance and so there's less money for people like you and me to donate to people who are actually doing the work and it's ultimately (laughs) growing to be a leviathan where when you talk to gleaners food bank You know, when I did an interview with them in the past, they said, look, we can't exist without federal funds. There is not an an amount of money in the public, in the private sector to to give us in terms of what we need to buy food for all the food banks in the Midwest. You know, so now they're dependent on that and nobody's going to argue against a system that keeps them employed, them helping do well for other people, do good for other people too. Um, So- I think people have this idea that, well, we can't not we can't change the system because people really don't want to help. I've always argued the opposite, but I'd love to hear from the from the perspective of somebody that works day in and day out with nonprofit professionals and their character and then also some of their struggles.
1: Yeah, I I think that the vast majority of people, you, you look at how people come together during a natural disaster is a perfect example. That when we did uh, hurricane relief after Hurricane Harvey in Houston and Hurricane Irma which hit some of the Caribbean islands there was more food and donations given from people in America than could fit in the warehouse. We had a giant like think of the the lumber section in Lowe's and how big that is. A giant warehouse there's more food in it than could possibly even be sent out like it was crazy the problem is that uh, for a lot of americans and you see this in the reduction in uh, some level of volunteering and you see this in the reduction in charity uh, giving charity that uh, government programs have taken their compassion and spent it And so when it comes to charity work or when it comes to helping the community, there's not as much left for that. Uh, You think about, you see a homeless person on the side of the road holding a sign, you know, I need food, I need this, I need that. And a lot of people have the urge to help them. A lot of the the leaders that I work with on a regular basis, you know, the number one thing I have to tell nonprofit leaders is slow down. (laughs) (laughs) I have to tell them the unfortunate fact, which is there are more people who need help than can ever be helped for for you to be able to do that. And you have to be able to pace yourself so that you can help the most people possible over time uh, so that you can grow the operations of your organization in addition to helping people. And I think that the vast majority of Americans are there for helping and they want to help. The problem is that uh, by operating through every time there's a problem, we need a new government program to solve it. You're using the institution that can't do it and can't do it well. And and when you put in a government program, it's really hard to get rid of because it crowds out the market and all of the nonprofits who were helping in that space now don't have the money to help because it's all going to this federal program. And none of the grantors are willing to give the money because, well, these other places don't have this federal program. And at the end of the day, when, when we did uh, the Johnson administration did something really interesting with their work stu- or their work study programs. So you would, or I guess not work study, it's workforce development. So they would take people who didn't have jobs and give them training and skills and connect them with employers and get them jobs. The Johnson administration did something really interesting, which is they hired a bunch of professors to evaluate the effectiveness of this workforce development program. And the effectiveness was so terrible that the professors were not allowed to publish their studies publicly. They had to be released later after the Johnson administration was done. That sounds familiar. (laughs) And you talk to people who run nonprofits, people who run charities, and they'll tell you up and down the, the perils of getting funding from people who don't really care what you're doing, and don't really care how effective it is, they're just giving you funding because they have that funding to give away, and uh, how many restrictions they put on that funding to try to prevent fraud, but they don't actually know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're looking at. Like we just, um, I was just seeing a, a government grant recently that was for food organizations, and asked them how many people do you serve per um, in the year. Well, that's a really bad way to measure impact for a food organization because they don't always know how many people they serve, but they do know how many meals they gave out. And so they have that idea. But then you have to like do this complicated uh, turning it into people serve so that you look like you're doing what the government wants you to do. And uh, that process, you know, I'm sure Gleaners Food Bank, if they were not scared to bite the hand, talk about the hand that fed them, uh, I'm sure they would describe. Some of the challenges, you know, the most recent COVID funding, um, essentially, I won't say it won't go to serve white people, but it is much more difficult to get it to serve white people, even in communities where there are only white people. And while I'm totally fine with, you know, having priorities for your funding to go to these underserved communities, saying, hey, if you're not one of these underserved communities, you can't get this funding
0: is really damaging it's so just to interrupt you um again but so rupert out of rupert's kids a good friend of mine rupert from survivor keeps butt dialing me uh and so he has a charity that serves it's a it's a great program so basically he takes youth um, somewhere between 15 to 25, but he's elastic in terms of who he's helping. So Rupert's kids sometimes can be 40-year-olds who are, have nowhere else to go, and they're getting out of the system. And huh. he's trying to break that recidivism cycle by giving them a place at the warehouse where they can crash, have an address for the parole, have address, you know, have support, all of those good things that people often don't when they have when they get out. He gives them a job, teaching them hard skills, uh, manual labor construction, uh, and takes properties that were off, that were on, off the tax rolls, abandoned houses, buildings, whatever, and rehabs them for the city of Shelbyville. And so it's a win, 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 win for everybody. Yeah. Right. And his program was originally in inner Cindy, inner city Indianapolis, and now it's in a rural white area. And he has mentioned that, that it is, it's two different areas. The the challenges are a lot similar, drugs usually. And so people who get out of jail, who have been taught by a better class of criminal, they don't have $170 a week for the court fees. So they go back to the only way to generate revenue because they don't want to ask their family who also doesn't have the revenue to pay those court fees. Then they get caught again. Then they go back. Then they get caught again. Same cycle repeats itself. Uh, But in the inner city, there were more programs than there were in rural American areas. And there's, he's like, the struggle is different because there is a lack of programs, both government funded and non government funded. And the whole area is really like completely not looked after. There's nobody serving rural communities. And then we wonder why rural american communities, poor people, the working class, people who had good jobs, maybe the grandparents had good jobs, now they have no economic opportunity, look to more radical political solutions because there's no civil society there, there's no churches, the schools have have, you know, no real support systems. There's no comparison in terms of the support systems within suburban and inner city schools compared to rural Indiana schools. It's it's just not there. And it's almost like the Taliban. You know, That's how the Taliban and Al-Qaeda grew. They basically said, look, nobody's looking after you. I'm the only one that has your back. I'm the only one that's going to fight for you. Yep. I'm going to take over the government, and I'm going to help you and because of the lack of civil society that exists in these rural areas it's created a political problem now and then everybody sort of goes well how do we fix this well let's pass a coving funding bill and make the problem worse that to me is like the quintessential nature of how we just keep making our own problems worse by looking to force as the solution as opposed to investing more in our communities um and then, well, is, then, so give a thought on that. And then I want to go into your event.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and here's the thing is uh, when it comes to government, um, often government is the monopoly, or it's viewed as the number one way that we solve this problem. The thing is, there are thousands of needs out there. They range from the lady I was talking to today, who uh, there's no Real uh, place for autistic adults to go. They still have full time caregivers, but there's places for autistic kids. And then there's places, there's, you know, where you would go as a normal adult. They can't go there. They need to go to somewhere that's just for them, that can support them and their unique needs. That isn't there. To uh, your basics like food and lack of shelter and lack of adequate medical care and things like this. There are thousands of needs across the board. When you have only one entity that is expected to solve all of them, it will invariably do a terrible job at solving 99% of them. So while it may be investing in urban Mm -hmm. schools, it's not investing in rural schools and what they need. And so there's always this tit for tat. It's I'm in control of the helping engine, or you're in control of the helping engine and whoever's in control of the helping engine gets the vast majority of the help. And that is such a terrible way to solve problems that need compassion at the end of the day, that if you didn't have the one helping engine and if we as a society said simply because voters keep doing this, voters are the problem here. We Voters keep doing this. I know not everybody on your watching your show votes, but let's just say we as voters are the problem here. We keep saying government is the solution to these problems and voting in new programs and politicians will vote in new programs. If the voters, if people are listening to this broadcast, maybe not everybody's listening to the broadcast, but if people are listening to the broadcast, if they go, there are actually three ways to solve problems. And this, this is a compassion problem right here. This is a problem we need more. We need people to set up organizations. We need people to uh, you know, engage with their community. We need to understand the problems of these individuals. If they approach our problems where people cannot afford the solution and force is not the answer with compassion, then you would see support in rural communities in relation to the amount they need and see support in urban communities in relation to the amount they need. Instead of this constant back and forth where, well, federal funding currently is going to uh, BIPOC and LGBTQ people. But you know what? When Governor DeSantis takes over, federal funding is going to go to white people. Well, well, those people still need help, too. Why, Why do we keep because it's the one source? And if that's not the one source anymore, and if we're like, actually, it's just bad at this stuff. And we need community solutions to handle them. You'd have a lot more a lot less division in this country which is primarily caused by the fact there's one help engine and the person who's in charge of it gets all the help
0: all right so let's talk about your upcoming event uh at the institute for community solutions your website is institute for community org. i'll put this event in there on october 10th you're going to release a report tell us a little bit about the report and the work that you've been uh working on I, that if i were a better writer i would have thought uh, i would not have used the same word twice but i'm not so tell well, us you know the,
1: the, the writer's strike just <laughs> ended, yeah right so exactly. i know they haven't come
0: back yet so tell us about uh, the com- community solutions to justice
1: event absolutely so when we started the institute for community solutions what we realized was the reason that the vast majority of leaders in our country today and the vast majority of americans who genuinely want to help don't think about utilizing community organizations is they don't know what they do and they don't know where they are and they don't know what their impact is. And so we as an institute focused on impact and we decided to tackle one of the hardest areas, particularly for libertarians, but really for anybody, one of the hardest areas to identify solutions for, which is our justice system. You know, you saw the George Floyd riots uh, and protests. You saw the... uh, Uh, Ferguson and Mike Brown uh, protests, you saw the Trayvon Martin protests, you know that the justice system in this country is broken, but here's a couple statistics you may not know. Our national first year recidivism rate is 44%. So within the first year after being convicted of a crime, um, almost half of people will commit a new crime. But if you take that out to seven years, it's 84%. So if you think about the justice system supposed to be something that protects you and supposed to be something that makes our community safer, and yet it continually runs people through what I've heard called criminal university and makes them harder and harder criminals, I don't know a single pitch that I would listen to where somebody said, yeah, our effectiveness rate is uh,
0: 16% over the long haul. Right. (laughs) And it's going to cost you four times the amount that it would if it were done somewhere else. Right, right, exactly. Sounds like a great investment,
1: right? Um, If you think about the Sixth Amendment uh, requires a speedy and public trial. And uh, when you think of speedy, you might think of like, I don't know, within a month. The average, just to get to a plea deal, because most cases in America today don't go to trial. That's a vastly different topic. But the average amount of time it takes to get a case to disposition is five months. And in that time, the victim, they are not getting any closure. They're not getting an opportunity to get justice. They are
0: in danger sometimes because of the bail. They're sometimes (laughs) in danger. Domestic violence victims, for instance, don't make it because of those those instances.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, that um, the guy who drove his truck through a bunch of kids in Milwaukee, you know, he was just, well, our system can't handle him. uh, So uh, we're letting him back out. And uh, on the offender side or the accused side, you know, particularly if the accused is innocent, you're sitting in, particularly if you don't have the money for bail. In most cases, you're sitting in jail for months for something you didn't do. I know when I went through the system, I had a suspended license. I couldn't drive for like eight months until my, my court date finally came up. Thank God I had a position that didn't require me to drive. But if, like most Americans, I had to drive to go to work, that was, th- was going to be a massive burden on me. Or if you think about, you know, if you are convicted, the, uh, <clears throat> the amount of, uh, for, for young people in particular, but also for adults. The quicker the consequences show up, the more connected they are to the activity and the more relevant they are. If you have someone whose consequences don't show up for one, two, three years later, particularly for juveniles, it's kind of irrelevant at that point. So uh, you're looking at five months uh, to trial. And uh, in a 2016 poll of Americans' public confidence in the courts, only 30% of americans said that the courts were uh worth you know they they were trustworthy and they were going to deliver an unbiased decision that was justice and for an institution that has neither the power of the sword nor the purse as alexander hamilton would put it that's a pretty bad position to be in and it's also not new uh there was a survey done in the 60s of people who primarily engaged with the court system, so lawyers, judges, et cetera, that asked them about the trustworthiness of the system. And what they found in that survey was the more people interacted with the justice system, the less they trusted it, which is the opposite of what you'd hope would be the case. If you
0: look at the backend analytics of the people that like the We Are Libertarians Facebook page, it is largely lawyers, teachers, soldiers, and anybody else that has to work with the government. Libertarian meetings are usually full of people that have a state paycheck hitting their bank account uh, because they are interacting with it on a level that people who love state solutions are not.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. And so uh, this is, uh, you know, Roscoe Pound um, said uh, he was uh, one of the first attorney generals. uh, He said that uh, people essentially have to trust the justice system or it doesn't work. And by all measures, the justice system doesn't work, and it really hasn't improved since he gave that speech in 1900. So we took on this area and we decided to do some research in it. We identified 200 organizations throughout the United States that are nonprofit community organizations that help people resolve harms and uh, resolve disputes and repair harms outside of the justice system. And we looked at the data. For these organizations and at this event on october 10th we're going to introduce the world to community justice and uh, the impact that community justice can have on your community on our justice system as a whole now j- community justice won't solve everything uh it has its limitations uh it uh, uh Isn't really great for like murder, for example, or uh, situations where the accused has no interest in accepting responsibility for the act that they committed. But today, community justice organizations already handle over 600,000 cases a year. And uh, based on our research, the case studies we found had things like recidivism rates of uh, between uh, 3.5 to 15%, which is three to five times better than our current justice system. They had case processing times 30 to 90 days, five, five, five times faster than traditional court. Uh, you had, ironically, increased compliance with decisions because the parties are actually centered in the decisions. the The state is not the center. Of justice, it is the victim and the offender working out what justice looks like to them. And uh, you had high rates of satisfaction, again, from both victims and offenders who felt that it treated them fairly because it put them first. And that's what we'll be releasing and talking about on October 10th.
0: Okay, so people can sign up to come and see your findings, right? And uh, once you have the findings, we're going to have you back to kind of go through those. In a little bit more detail, um, what? How do I sign up? You know, is it in person, online? What can I yeah. expect? Are you just doing this, a boring PowerPoint presentation? Will there be dancing girls and flames? What? Do, what am I looking for here, Dan?
1: This will be a virtual event where you get to ask questions of six organizations around the country that are changing justice in their community. So we will release the results of the report, so there will be a little bit of PowerPoint. But the prime focus of this is, if you are facing a challenge with justice in your community right now, if you are a community leader who has struggled to reform the justice system, like Commissioner Deferding in Wisconsin, if you are a community organizer who wants to focus on making the justice system better in your community and actually solving the problems that came up in the George George Floyd uh, situation and in the Trayvon Martin situation and in other justice situations around the country, you want to focus on actually solving those problems. This is the event to be at because you're going to get to ask questions of the executive directors of six organizations who have, proven that they've been able to fix those problems in their community and are willing to give you advice and answer your questions about how you can do the same in your community so we're introducing community justice to you at this event if you want to sign up you go just put an in institute for community solutions in google i don't expect uh even me i can't spell the url half the time but Institute for Community Solutions at the top of the page is CSJ Launch Community Solutions of Justice Launch. Click on that is a virtual event over Zoom. It'll be October tenth from ten PM or from seven PM to eight thirty PM, and uh, literally register on Zoom and you'll be able to get into the event. Talk to these leaders and you'll be first to see the report. The report has uh, we've done two things with the report we identify the solutions that work. So we separated out probably half of the solutions that don't work, that don't have any statistical evidence that backs them up. And we've included solutions that both have the academic research that backs them up, that they're effective and uh, case study organizations that show how they're effective in another community. Uh, We've broken that all out into the report, which you'll get early access to if you attend the event.
0: All right, Dan, uh, Thanks so much for coming on. This has been a great conversation. Everybody check out the event. I will be there. Uh, Is there a replay if people can't make it at that specific time? Is there, will it be recorded and posted to YouTube or?
1: Well, yeah, we'll record clips uh, and get it out there. I highly encourage people to attend the event so they can get their questions answered because that's the only time we'll be doing that. But we'll be posting clips of the event on YouTube. And of course, the report will be released uh, as well later if you can't make it
0: on the time. All right, very good. Dan, thanks so much. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Chris. All right, thank you so much for listening to this program. If you got something out of it, please share it with your friends. Share it on social media. And make sure you subscribe to YouTube and on your uh, Apple Podcast app or Spotify Podcast app. Thanks so much for joining us here on The Chris Spangle Show.